Thanks again to everyone supporting us on the podcast through Patreon. Patreon allows our listeners an opportunity to contribute to the podcast and allow us to bring you great guests and content each week. Thank you to all of our patrons and a special shout out to Jonathan Lambert for being our largest donor. You too can become a patron by visiting patreon.com slash mentors, the number four M-I-L. This podcast is sponsored by Uncanna, trusted natural solutions. Uncanna is a leading voice of advocacy for CBD in the veteran LEO and federal communities. Veteran owned and operated, the Uncanna team is actively fighting for DOD access to CBD with political pressure, community support, and a simple message. Hashtag OpNatural. Uncanna is vertically integrated with industry leaders from seed to sell, supplying premium small batch products to America's best. Use code mentors the number four MIL at checkout at uncana.com to receive your amazing discount. Read the Mentors for Military disclaimer at mentorsformilitary.com slash disclaimer. The Mentors for Military Podcast. Welcome to the show, by the way. I'm Robert Gowan. Hi. Yeah, it's Hello, a pleasure, pleasure to finally meet you and everything. I appreciate Tom giving the introductions and, uh, you know, you getting a chance to come on and join us. Thanks. And, of course, you know you know Tom, but you, don't, sure know, do. yeah, you don't know the other guy there, and that's Michael Rutledge. Hello, Michael nice Rutledge. Nice to meet you, so, so Michael, uh, Mike's claim to fame is uh, former Navy SEAL, played with the Dolphins, um, used a lot of hair gel products, uh, those types of things, the normal things. It's true. It's true. Um, has not written a book yet or starred in a movie, uh, but he decided to go into... On the horizon. Yeah, it is. I'm sure it is. Because here's the next part, Patty. You'll I probably every single episode. You'll, you'll be more impressed every with episode. this part. He decided to go into the Army and join the 160th SOAR. So he actually went to uh, Warren Officer Candidate School and told them he wants to go into the 160th, and he got it. Wow. Impressive, right? He came right? over to the dark side. Good job. <laughs> Make it sound like it was just a whim. That was 15 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't like an impulsive decision that I'm still working on. <laughs> but do you still have a six-pack? Uh well, I'm almost 50, so no. More like a three, I think. I was going to say in the refrigerator, maybe. <laughs> three and a half, maybe. Uh, I was like waiting for you. like a keg. I was waiting for you to come back and say something like that, like in the uh, refrigerator or something like that, as opposed to really <laughs> yeah, thinking I, about that mic. And... Yeah, but with this group, I know that I'm getting led in for the kill somewhere, so I kind of I think a little bit before I talk. <laughs> I got to just blurt out instinctive stuff anymore with this group. No doubt. No doubt. Not my first rodeo. I hear you. Cool. Well, I want to dive into your background and everything, Patty, because um, actually I was doing some stalking on somebody else that um, had been referred to me for a podcast, and it found out that you were a member of the board of that organization that I was referred to. And when I started reading your bio, I was totally fascinated by your background. And so I reached out to Tom and I said, hey, do you know Patty? And he's like, oh, yeah, I know Patty. And that's how the whole thing started. And so I'd love to get back into the very beginnings. And I understand you joined in 1991 into the military. Were you coming straight out of college or how did that come about? Mm -hmm. 
Um, so I went to college on an ROTC scholarship in New Jersey. So I went to Rutgers. Um, so similar to um, Mike, I'll be 50 in a month. Um, awesome. Yeah. So, so came in, came in straight out of college. No, really no military in my family. Just it seemed like, hey, this is a great way to pay for school. Um, my dad convinced me it was a good idea. And he had never been in the military, and so um, I was I was off and running. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So um, <laughs> no military service and nothing that actually caused you to go into the ROTC program, or was it just something as far as a, a scholarship opportunity? Um. I mean, my my uncle had served in Vietnam, but he never really talked about it. I had another uncle who served in the Marines for a couple of years, and I mean, years and years ago before I was even alive. Um. I think I was always kind of interested, like I would gravitate toward the military books in the library in grade school and high school. So I always had this kind of interest. Um, but honestly, it wasn't until my dad's like, hey, this is a great way to pay for college. Um, P.S. Your mom and I don't have a money tree. Like, what's your plan? <laughs> and, I, and I thought I was like, oh, there's no money tree. Get okay, out. Yeah, um, that was my plan. So, um, yeah, it really started as, hey, I'll do my four years and then I'll I, I had no plan on what I really wanted to be when I grew up. And so four years went by really quickly. And then I thought, Oh, well, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to try another, I'm going to try another, you know, four years, see how this goes. I started at Fort Lewis and in my heart of hearts, I was like, well, Fort Bragg is the place to be. So let me see if I can get there next. And, and then I, then I went there. Yeah. Yeah. So what was the uh, branch that you ended up going into initially? Air defense artillery. Really? <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. Not really, not really by choice. Um, so, you know, the army does a branch detail program and, and they were short combat arms. So you'd go and you spend two years in a combat arms branch or four years, depending on what your, your branch was. And then you go back to your basic branch or what you really asked for, which was signal for me. Um, but it was kind of interesting because I branched air defense artillery. I came in, you know, just as the first Gulf war was ending. So Patriot missiles were pretty cool. Oh yeah. You know, in the in mainstream media, that was a kind of a cool thing. So it seemed, it seemed pretty interesting um so that was it was fun for two years now wasn't that the branch correct me if i'm wrong patty wasn't that the branch that um actually was probably the first for females to go into from a combat arms standpoint um i mean there were women in field artillery prior to that okay um it so i don't i don't maybe i mean it was maybe one of the earlier ones so yeah yeah i I got a question patty so you said mm-hmm. this is what you got branched, but what did you envision doing? What is it that you wanted to do? I mean, we know the army screws you out yeah. of that all the time, but what did you <laughs> want? I think, I mean, you don't really know. Like, even though you do four years of ROTC and then you do your your summer camp prior to commissioning and you're exposed for like maybe an hour of what each branch does, you really don't have a good idea of what anyone does. And and shamelessly, I will admit, like, Signal was like, okay, hey. Um, you're always going to be able to call home wherever you are. Like this was 1991. So that was still a pretty cool thing. <laughs> and so I was kind of jazzed. I was like, okay, Hey, I can, I can always phone a friend or, you know, phone home, which just seems great. Um, and that see, I will say like, that just seemed like the most impressive thing. And it, and it was one of those things where you could go to any installation in the army. There was someone doing communications. So it offered a lot of just different variety to me. So I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll give this a try. I was very intimidated by military intelligence. I didn't think I was smart enough to branch military intelligence, frankly. Yeah. It's already an oxymoron. So I yeah. mean, I thought everybody was. <laughs> so uh, you said you ended up or you wanted to go to Bragg. So that, I guess that was your next duty station. 82nd? Yeah. No, I was in 18th Airborne Corps. Okay. Uh, not cool enough to go to the 82nd at that time. <laughs> so 
Um, but that was, it was still cool. So I was a company commander there and I went to jump master school there and I had checked all the blocks that I thought were like cool blocks for women to have. Um, and while I was there, I had a, a boss who had previously worked on the special operations side and he said, Hey, do you want to go and do something else at some point in your career? That's a little different. And I was like, yeah, sure. Like, do I call them? Do they call me? How does this, how does this cool thing work out? And I didn't even really know what it was. And he said, someone will call you. Um, and it honestly took two years before anyone called me. So, um, yeah, so I went I went to Colorado Springs for a year and worked with the Air Force. And then I was a, a joint staff intern on the joint staff at the Pentagon for a year. And then someone called me. Yeah. So what was the call like? Hey, Patty, uh, it's your turn. No, it was it was very evasive. And do you want to go and do something else? And um, I said, yeah. And then they sent me this huge application. And this was before I worked with Tom. This was a previous assignment. Um, and it was all very, um, vague, which just makes you more interested. Um, and then I went and I interviewed and then they said, okay, well, you have to go through, you know, a couple of hoops and selections and training and things like that. And, um, and I did and, and found myself in a very different environment where, I mean, there was, there was part of the time where I felt like I was like an extra in the movie, true lies. <laughs> um, like why, how am I doing these things? Um, and so I did that for a couple of years and that was really kind of my first taste into there are other opportunities for people in the military that you don't always know about. Um, and then after that assignment, I found myself working with Tom. So what was it, uh, the time frame? the time frame must've been right before nine 11 then that you yeah. started. Okay. Yeah. So it was a much different environment. At, yeah. 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 Much different environment at that time frame. but you were there then when nine 11 happened. Yeah, I, I would imagine then in that capacity, a lot of things occurred. Special operations started taking on a whole new meaning and a whole new role there, uh, you know, and the need and the demand for that type of action and information mm -hmm. and flow and everything else, especially within the command that you were in, was so important. And mm -hmm. um, But then again, I think there was a bit of going from the Cold War era Desert Storm, you know, that was kind of a blip on a radar. And then you, you go into something like the, the whole GWAT time period. And this is when the military, I think, was really trying to find its way into a new environment and into an, yeah. an enemy that they weren't familiar with at that time frame. Not, not in the way I think that they imagined. Well, I think add to that, too, consider that time frame. I remember distinctly we were joint, but we were really joint. Everybody was doing their complete separate things prior to 9-11. Yeah. It was horrible. You couldn't even communicate with we were lines, silos of excellence. Yeah. It was, yeah. It was horrible. Everybody was really great, but they were all by themselves in their own pasture. Yeah. Think about it. I wanted to go back to um, when you got a call like for selection, you know, or whatever it was, yeah. or to come into to special ops. A lot of guys, they give women a hard time anyway. And mm -hmm. then you got women going to SF Ranger School and men are just trashing them. I see it on social media and, and I start seeing people trash people. And I'm like, okay, who are you? Block, delete, you know, because. <laughs> Guys don't think of the other side. You know, I knew I wanted to go to selection. When I, when I found out about it, I knew I wanted to go. I called. I asked if I could go. It was my decision. They gave you a call and said, you want something different? Yeah. Well, what is it? Well, you know, come check it out. Yeah. Then we'll tell you what it is. You know, and it's like, think about jumping off into the deep end with that. And nobody considers that at all. And then yeah. to be among those A types the entire time, you know, um, I know I never felt good enough anyway. I can't imagine the pressure on, on women in that world. And then people, I don't know, give them a hard time even more just for that. I think, um, I think nobody ever feels good enough. I think that that's a psych, a sign of like healthy humility. So like I acknowledge that. Um, 
I think that the one thing that was a little bit different, Tom, is like you knew you wanted to go and everyone knows someone who knows someone and you know a little bit. Like you, you just know a little bit of information about what it's like. I didn't know anything at all. Like I like when I joke around and say it was like being in true lies, I was like, how did this I, I like I call myself, I'm like, how did this like state school educated Italian Irish girl from Jersey wind up here? Um, and so, but I will say that being in the special ops community where I spent probably about seven years of my career, I I certainly experienced less sexism than the conventional forces, because at the end of the day, Tom, your community was like, look, I don't really care if you have a ponytail, like just, does my phone work? Like, does my computer work? Or can I have what I need? Like you, you didn't have time to care. Um, and I don't think people realize like how, in in your own way, you made me feel welcome, or you know the Michelle Schmitz of the world, the other folks like that, because you didn't have time to care. So that was a much easier environment in some ways. Yeah, you know, I I kind of agree with you, Patty. And I always thought special operations in general. I think the public thinks spec ops is going to be more biased towards females because yeah. it's harder, it's more specialized, more physical, whatever. And I think really, if you ask anybody on the inside, we're actually quite the opposite. Special operations realized the unique ability and utility of women way before the conventional forces ever understood that. Mm -hmm. So I think it's always kind of been the opposite. I mean, there's ones and twos here and there, but uh, I think the community has always kind of realized it as a, as just a different asset, not just, you know, another number to fill a selection class. They're like, well, you know what? She can do things that that two blonde guy can't do. Yeah. Yeah, I I I think think we view it as uh, we view it as work related. Can you do your job? If you can, great. Versus who cares what sex you are? Um, can you do your job? I know that we're harder on people who we think don't do as much. Operators are like, oh, the support guys. You'd hear it, oh, the support guys. They don't, blah, blah, blah. I'm an operator. And I never felt that way, really. And I really didn't feel that way when I when I took over Combat Support Squadron. You realize how much more there is. And there's like six support people to one operator. Yeah. And like, you can't do it without me. I'm like, you can't do it without six people. I mean, really? <laughs> Who needs more? You right. know? So, right. But and that's I think, where I, I'm sorry. What I was going to say is, um, I think if as a support person, when you go in that was like, that was what I did my entire career, right? My, my job exists to make someone else successful. And if you always go into it with that mindset, like, yeah, we're, I, you know, people are like, oh, it must've been so cool where you worked. And I was like, it was cool. I acknowledge it was cool. I had a bigger budget and I had more latitude, but there was an expectation that I would never not be successful. And I was never going to say no. Like one of the things you learn is like, the answer is yes. Now, Tom, what do you need? (laughs) Right. It's not going to be like necessarily the way you want, but I know I have to say yes, or I'm going to find myself like working somewhere else. So you just got to figure out what yes looks like. You know, you fast forward now though, Patty, and you see, you know, as we're talking about this very subject with a lot of women entering into the soft community, mm-hmm. um, I do think that the 10% that's out there are speaking a lot louder than the 90% if that's what the, the ratio actually is. Because I think there is a, a tendency um, for people to feel very protective of their, their manhood or the machoism or the testosterone level is going to go down within the community because mm-hmm. uh, women are joining. And, yeah. um, you know, now that we do have a lot more uh, women going through ranger school, you know, or, or women now actually uh, passing SFAS and, mm-hmm. and starting the whole process uh, through the selection, I think um, – if people like you who are in the community and, and doing specific roles kind of laid a little bit of that foundation to give the attitude of what Mike and Tom were just describing. 
Yeah. And I think, you know what, like my, I mean, my hat's off to those women. They are um, incredible and they are incredible under a microscope where, um, you know, very few people, I, I didn't, I didn't do that many cool things, first of all, but very few people knew where I worked or what I did and nobody, it, it wasn't like I was going to be in the army times. Right. Um, so, you know, when you look at the Kristen Grice of the world, who's, I think she's an infantry company commander right now. Like it's hard enough when you're a captain and you're doing that job, but now, you know, like people that don't know you are going to write comments about you. Like Tom said, like there's comments in the media, right? The first rule you should ever learn is like, just don't read the comments and just stay away from comments. Right. Um, it's awfully hard for them. And I, I'm pretty impressed at how all of them have handled it so far. Um, and someone's going to do something stupid because, you know, someone does something stupid in the army all the time and, and, and then there'll be the whole, see, I told you so. Right. And so I, I, I feel for them in a, in a big way because I think it's hard and, you know, in a couple of years, this won't be a hot topic anymore. It'll just, it'll just be going on. I think the people that are closest to it that are seeing them perform, they know what matters. And if we could just kind of block out the noise, they don't matter. Yeah. You know? I, try, I try to tell people everything looks big under the microscope. Yeah. <laughs> everything looks big. Problems. I mean, it all looks big. You're right. So when you're not under the microscope anymore, you can screw up just like everybody else does without the hassle. Yeah. You know, it's funny. Tom brought it up and you just reminded me, Patty, of the only story. I, I never dealt with females, obviously, coming in the SEAL teams. That was after my era. But uh, I remember when the, the first female pilots were coming to the 160th mm. uh, five, six years ago. And Colonel Evans, who was uh, the regiment commanding officer at the time, actually came out to Afghanistan. He's like, men, I want you to listen up. Here's what's happening. Who's now General Evans, commanding general of the cadet command. And they said, hey, we're getting the first women. And, you know, whatever battalion was, you could see all the long faces and, and your traditional. And I was probably one of them. But I was one of the senior guys at the time. And, of course, they're all rallying like, you can't let this happen. you got to talk to them. And so I'm like, you know, he's like, anybody have any questions? They're coming next month. And I said, yeah, sir, i got a question. You know, my guys are saying that uh, – you know, what if, what if they can't pull me out of a burning helicopter, which is kind of dumb when you think about it in retrospect, but that was their <laughs> argument, you know, what, well, they can't pull me out of a burning helicopter. And so I will never forget what he said. And it completely changed my perspective on it. Very mature. And he said, well, I'll tell you what, guys, you're absolutely right. He goes, and if that's your concern, he goes, I'm lining up every single guy in the regiment and you're going to carry a 200 pound dummy across the tarmac. And if you can't do it, I'm going to fire you. <laughs> And, you know, interestingly enough, I'm like, that was genius because there was yeah. never another word said about it. It was harmonious. Every, they all performed, you know, as good or better than any other counterparts. But I'm like, you know what? That, that's true. That's a metric. You know, if you're going to talk about it, then you need that's to be held to the same standard. How many yeah. times have I heard that they don't want to go to intelligence, right? They don't want to talk about that. They want to talk about who can drag me out of a foxhole or out of a helicopter or a car when I've been shot. I've, I've heard that a thousand times. If who can't carry me, I go, I can't carry half the people I worked with. <laughs> you know, I, I, um, I couldn't, I couldn't do it. When I, um, I went to free fall school when I was a young fit person and I remember I was there with another young lady and, um, there was an older master sergeant there. I mean, older in the grand scheme of how old I was at the time. And, um, you know, by the end of the second week, you're jumping with your rucksack and your O2 and whatever, and your, your body's pretty beat up. And it was a Friday morning, and we knew we got the weekend off. And he looked over at me and, and Christy, and he's like, you know what? He goes, every day when I wake up, and I am so tired, and I'm so sore, and I drag myself out of bed, I think about you two who weigh, like, 100 pounds less than all of us. And, like, you guys have not complained once. And he's like, I know I just need to, like, 
pull my socks up and like man up and not complain about what I'm doing because you guys are not complaining. And like, that was kind of cool. Like that meant a lot to me. That was like maybe one of the best things anyone said to me. Um, and so like that Friday rolled around and like Christy and I went to get massages downtown and get a pedicure. And like we come back Sunday night and all the guys were like, I got steak. I got drunk. What'd you guys do? Christy's like, we got a massage. And they like initially laughed at us. And like by the next week they're like, Hey, where'd you get the massage? Like we want to go get a massage. So (laughs) I mean, I think where'd you get that pedicure? Yeah. (laughs) So you're telling me you got a pedicure in Yuma, Arizona. Uh, Marana, yeah, <laughs> Tucson. I'm sure we went to Tucson. <laughs> Those are weekly necess- necessities out there, right? Exactly right. <laughs> oh my God! Well, you know what's interesting though. You mentioned about military freefall. You were the first woman in DOD to complete the military freefall jumpmaster course. Mm-hmm. That's like big time. It was big time, but it was one of those like. Um, I had a boss that said, do you want to go? And I was like, yeah, sure. Why not? Um, and I didn't, I didn't know that a woman hadn't gone before. And so I'm, I remember like leaving that weekend. He goes, Hey, um, you cannot come back unsuccessful. And I was like, I don't plan to be unsuccessful in anything <laughs> I do. And he goes, I don't, I don't think you know the stakes riding on this. It's like, um, don't screw like, me okay. over. Yeah, don't, <laughs> don't, don't, don't screw me. this up. <laughs> so he goes, I don't care if you have to study every night. Um, so it was, I mean, it was a great, it was an opportunity. I don't think it certainly isn't, isn't hard. Um, in the grand scheme of, you know, it's not a gender specific school, but somebody, you know, a white man gave me an opportunity and, and then it worked out nicely. So, um, yeah, it was pretty cool. Well, and let's kind of fast forward then to something that occurred or happened to you later on in 2000, I think it was 2006 or 2007. Yeah. 2006. Yeah. A freak accident of all mm-hmm. things, uh, because yeah. of course, you know, if anybody knows you and, you know, Tom uh, shared with me, you were kind of an avid runner, bicyclist, all these types of things. And in this day, I guess you were riding your bicycle at Fort Bragg. Yeah, I was going to work. Mm-hmm. Okay. And and I guess, as I understand it, maybe you could tell the story, uh, somebody hit you from behind. Yeah. Yeah, I got hit from behind. Um, I was with one of my girlfriends and I was riding to work and um, got hit from behind and the guy pulled over immediately. And the guy behind him was a coworker. And I was, I mean, I was a mile from the office and, um, the guy simply didn't see me. And, you know, initially a lot of adrenaline, I don't, I don't know how bad it is. My first question, like any cyclist is like, how's my bike? Um, which was pretty bad. And, um, you know, the, the coworker that pulled over had called an ambulance and I was like in the ambulance at the hospital. I mean, it felt like within 10 minutes, um, and it was a really, really bad break. And I was in kind of in the ER, you know, triage room and the unit chaplain was there, which was really bizarre. And he just kind of pops his head in. And I was like, oh, my gosh, how hurt am I that you're here right now? And and he was actually going to see someone else. Um, oh, that's so it good. Pretty, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was a pretty bad break. And um, it was a pretty bad break. And the doctor told me, he's like, hey, you're not going to walk without pain. And you pretty much have no cartilage left. And this is the worst ankle break I've ever seen. Um, and I totally didn't believe him. And um, he was right. Yeah, it was pretty bad. Yeah, I think it was bad enough that um, they had talked about maybe having to fuse it or something of that nature at the time. He, yeah, he told me the next day, he said, you're going to be in so much pain when you start walking, you're going to beg me to fuse your ankle. And I literally said to him, you will cut my ankle off before I let you fuse it. But I honestly, at that point in time, I had no idea that it, it really was that bad. So I think that was a little bit of narcotics talking, but I was like, no way I have a race in six yeah. weeks and I'm going to be there. <laughs> well, see for someone like you though, that is athletic and, you know, outgoing and doing those types of things, this was a huge blow. Um, yeah. I, yeah. I mean, this is this for somebody who may have a hobby or something like that. If they were told that they could never do that again, 
um, that that's a major blow because it may be their way in which they can relieve the stress and and those types of things from the office. And now they're going to have to find a new outlet. But you're not just talking about that when you're talking about something like being able to walk differently and you know have to live with pain. Yeah, that that's a little different. Now you're. Yeah. So what was it that made you start looking outside at other opportunities or other options? Um, well, I will I will talk you through the dark time first. Um, it was bad, and I didn't realize that. <clears throat> you know, I started running when I was in high school, and that was my outlet. You know, you have a bad day at work, you go for a run, or you don't have a solve problem. Any that, that's what the army does too. You run, and I also define myself in. You know, I had been successful at jobs I had, but I got opportunities, you know, to work with Tom and other folks because I was I was a fit person that could, you know, kind of hang with the fellas. And so in my mind, that was my whole identity. And so um, when I realized that it was a pretty bad thing, then, you know, depression came knocking on my door like hard. Oh, sure. And um, and I didn't I didn't even know what it was. I just knew I was really in a bad place. Um, and I, I Googled one night, like signs and symptoms. And then I just started reading down the checklist and I was like, yes, 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 yes. And I was like, wow, this is, this is bad. Um, and I confided in my op sergeant major and I was like, I am in a really bad place. Um, and he, and this is, this is Yankee Romeo, Tom. He like literally dragged me down to like see our unit psych. And he's like, that's okay. There's tons of crazy people here. We have plenty of help for you. Um, and like, I so appreciated that he, like, he kind of joked about it. Like, he's like, look, I know you're kind of a mess, but there are lots of people who are a mess. And, like, when we talk about stigma, that was not a place where I felt it because um, there were a lot of people going through those revolving doors with a lot of challenges to overcome. So I so appreciate that bad things happen, but I was at the absolute best place I could have been to deal with what had happened to me. Um and so it took me, you know, took me a little, a little bit of drugs and a little bit of sitting on a couch and a lot of boxes of tissues. And I was like, this is not what I want. Um, and I, I think we had like three amputees at work who were moving along pretty darn well. Um, and when I started asking like, hey, what's a good fusion going to give me? And the answers were like golf and gardening. I'm like, I, I don't like those things now. I'm not going to like them later. Um, <laughs> And I was like, how about, how about a good amputation? What will that give me? Cause I see like, you know, Bob was deploying and you know, different things like that. And, um, and my first doctor said, Hey, a good amputation will probably be great for you, but, um, you don't meet the criteria of like, you have bone damage, but not enough nerve damage, but not enough. And, you know, you can still do your activities of daily living. And I was like, yeah, but your activities on your list are like a 60 year old woman. And I was, I think I was 37 at the time. Um, and so, Again, like work came through and said, we'll get you a second opinion. And they brought down an orthopedic surgeon from West Point and um, talked to him for a long time. And he's like, yep, I'll cut your leg off. Like, literally, that's <laughs> kind of how he said it. <laughs> and I was like, awesome. okay, let's go. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. So, I mean, that's a major decision in and of itself, because, I mean, you don't know what the outcome, if it's going to be any better. You're hoping that, I guess, that it's going to be better based on what you're seeing and probably the yeah. research that you did. But yet it also could have turned out a lot different as well. Um, I think I was in denial that it could have been a bad thing. Yeah. And that, that probably boded well for me, right? That I, my attitude was like, no, I'm going to make this work. I see you know, other people making this work. I'm no different. I'm going to make this work. So um, side story, like as I was getting ready to have this surgery, um, the chief of orthopedics at the Fort Bragg hospitals, the Walter Reed scandal was breaking at this point, right? So there's a lot of scrutiny under healthcare and military hospitals. And the chief of, chief of orthopedics at Fort Bragg was like, not in my hospital. And so 
my surgeon that did it was like, fine, we'll fly you up to West Point and you'll have it there in this little, you know, 400 bed hospital. So I, I literally like flew up there, had my I'm surgery. Here. I don't know if I'd do that. That's where I'm sitting right now. I wouldn't. Are get you it seriously? Um, <laughs> have a West Kurt, Kurt Allitz did my surgery um, and Kurt will be like on the Christmas card list forever. Um, and he was coincidentally, he was on the 1980 boycotted Olympic track team. So he totally understood like my head. Um, cause I was like, why do you get me? And he's just like, I understand. I, he goes, I am more concerned with what's between your ears than what your body looks like right now. So yeah. Yeah. He did. He did my shoulder. He was an excellent. Oh, did he really? Yeah. Yeah. I went up to West Point and had it done up there. So might've been around the same time frame. Uh, I don't know if it was because Um, of of Womack and having issues or something. 2007. Yeah. 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 Do you know of him, Mike? Yeah. That's what I went up I'm getting ready to retire. So I haven't gotten any surgeries yet. So. Oh, okay. If you need so one, look he's, him up. he's your man. <laughs> <laughs> he's like a country doc now somewhere out in, uh, I think he's a country doctor somewhere, isn't he? Do you know what? He retired and then he was called back to active duty. And I don't know if he's retired again or not. So take me through what happened after that. I mean, um, what was it like to recover and go through all of the, uh, I mean, it was a bit of a change, I think, from a career standpoint from where you were at that point, right? Um, I, so, so while all this was going on, I actually came out on a battalion command list. Um, and then I, well, so, so the day before my accident, I found that I was selected for Lieutenant Colonel early. So I was like, not shy on self-confidence. And then like, I'm lying on the side of Manchester road. So like a dose of humility in a big way, (laughs) which I probably needed. Um, and so when I knew I was going to amputate, I was like, look, I need to defer command because I I don't know how long it's going to take me to get healthy again. Um, the recovery was actually really, really fast. And I credit that to, uh, because I had my surgery on a Wednesday. I flew home on a Friday. I went back to work, um, like 10 days later, like as soon as I can get off narcotics and drive, I drove to work. I didn't have a prosthetic yet. Um, I came hopping down the spine and Tom, I don't even think you know the story. The first person I saw was Bill Thetford. And I didn't, I didn't like make an announcement on our command network. Like the unit commander knew my boss knew, you know, but it wasn't like, how do you tell people you're doing this? Right. So I'm hopping down the hall, like in shorts in my little stumpy leg. And he just like stops me and like looks me in the eye and he's like, Patty. And I was like, what's up, Sergeant Major? And he's like, oh my God. And I was like, Hey, I am going to be fine. I'm like, Kurt Alice did my surgery. You know, Brad Hollings making my legs. I have Greer with physical therapy. Like I am going to be great. I go, you know, Bob has been an awesome, you know, mentor. And he like looked at me and I like the words like fell out of his mouth. He goes, but you're a girl. And I did not take that in a negative way at all. Like (laughs) totally not at all. Like in my mind, it was like a very endearing, like little sister kind of a thing. Like, oh my God. And I was like, no, I'm going to be fine. Um, and then I'm sure it spread pretty quickly after that, you know, like, have you seen Patty? Um, but you know, I did physical therapy right at work. Um, you know, one of the people that worked with us was an amputee and from Somalia and actually went back to become a prosthetist for a little while. And then he came back and was teaching advanced skills. So he made my legs like literally at work. Um, it was really like, it was a weird kind of like community effort that I remember the first day I ran, which was pretty quick, like six weeks. Um, no, I think. I had a prosthetic in six weeks. I was walking without crutches in two days. And then I think at the four month mark, Brad made me a running leg. And, um, like I ran up and down the spine and like people were coming out of the office to watch, which was like a little bit weird, but also really cool because they had all known me like since I got hit. So sure. Great support group. It was pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. 
So, I mean, after that time frame, no issues or anything as far as service and, you know, because that's always one of those things. I think I can't remember when it was, but it was before that when there was the first amputee that actually uh, re-enlisted, stayed in the military. I think he was also in special operations. I'm not sure. Uh, but no, he wasn't. I don't, I don't know. Oh, I don't okay. know the story. Yeah. Yeah. I think he, I think there was a guy that did that. And, and of course it was a big story that broke out. And once the information uh, was available, but I think since then there have been a lot more people like yourself that came through the mm -hmm. pipeline that ended up having some kind of amputation that ended up reenlisting, staying in the military and having a, a great service, including like yourself. I, I think you continued jumping after that time. Right. Yeah. I stayed, um, I got back on jump status um, I stayed nine more years. Um, I deployed again. Um, I mean, I was, I'm a combo person. Like, it's not like I'm like running through, you know, doors. I, I work on keyboards. Um, it's right. not that hard. Right. Um, commanded a conventional battalion. It was interesting to go back out to the regular army because I was very much under the radar. I didn't advertise what happened to me. I didn't want to be part of anyone's media story. I didn't rehab at Walter Reed. Um, so I was kind of an unknown. And so, um, I remember the day I took battalion command, I was at Fort Hood and we had a brigade run the next day and the brigade sergeant major pulled me aside and he's like, Hey, um, we have a brigade run tomorrow. And I was like, yeah. And he's like, are you good? And I'm like, yeah, I'm good. And he goes, no, no. Like, and he, like, he meant it in a nice way. Like, I don't want to, we don't want to embarrass you. Like, so what is like, how can we do this? And I was like, I'm sure whatever brigade run pace we set will be just fine. Um, and then, you know, of course I was a jerk and I ran around the brigade with the colors twice and my <laughs> colors bear wanted to kill me, but I was like, no, I'm really fine. We, we um, don't want to embarrass you. <laughs> <laughs> we run a nine minute mile. Yeah. And, and the rubber band effect. Yes. <laughs> but no, it was, um, it was good. It was good. Yeah. So fast forward, you separate from the military, retire uh, as an 06 in 2015, mm -hmm. and you ended up joining the McChrystal Group. Is that something you did right after your transition, or when did that occur? No, I took a, I took a gap year. Like, <laughs> um, I wanted to train for the Paralympics, so I was like, well, let me just let me take a year off and see if I can do that. Um, and then, then I went to the work for the McChrystal Group initially as a as a part time contractor. Um, and then after about four months, they were growing their leadership institute. They're like, Hey, do you want to come on full time? And I was like, No, this part time gig is working well. <laughs> and they said, If you don't come on full time, we're going to hire someone else and maybe we're not going to call you. And I was like, Well, fine. But no, actually, it's been, it's been great fun. Um, it's been really great to kind of share some military lessons learned. But we have, I mean, we have tons of people who have not served in the military and it's a pretty cool group. And we talk about, you know, some of the lessons we learned early on in Iraq and Afghanistan and then, you know, bringing that to the civilian sector. And um, it's fun. Yeah, I like it. You know, looking back on your military career and everything, were there some leadership lessons that you've been able to share in, in to the private sector so that they can understand just that there are a lot more similarities than there are differences? Because I think when people are making the transition, they like to use the us and them, you know, and yeah. um, in a lot of cases, you know, having been out for a period of time into the, the private sector, there's a bit of a thought process that everybody that serves in the military goes down range and is an infantryman mm -hmm. and, you know, knocks in doors and everything like that. So, you know, the challenge I think some people have on the private sector is, what are the leadership skills that you can really bring to the table that translate to the private sector? How have yeah. you been able to help them through that? Um, that's a, that's a great question. And I think when you really look at the crux of it, like corporations have the same challenges that we had in our community, 
right? It's, you know, we talk about the silos of excellence and why are we not sharing best practices? Like tons of companies do the same thing where you have a merger, you have a merger or an acquisition and now you're still two different companies thinking that you're going to function with the same name, but you can't. Um, We talk a lot really about like human behavior and interaction. And like, I'm never going to have, you know, as much MBA experience to tell you how to run your bottom, your PL. Like, that's not why I'm here. But I can talk to you an awful lot about trust and teamwork and accountability. Um, and all those things are incredibly translatable. They're just, they just use different words. So, um, and I think companies, for the most part, are, it's refreshing to them to hear, like, oh my gosh, the military has these problems too. Like, I thought it was just us. Like, yeah. you know, everyone has this, everyone has the same challenges. So, yeah. Well, and, and being in the level that you were, you had the opportunity to work not only with uh, the private sector, I'm sure at times, but you also work with those within the government contracts. So you've seen government contracting and everything else. And I think that, so you, you saw the military, you saw the government contract period, you mm-hmm. saw the private sector, and mm-hmm. it probably, I would imagine, eased your transition opportunity as well, your transition period. Or how was your transition experience? Because we find that you know a lot of people have a tough time at doing that. Um, well, my transition was a little bit different because I took the year off and like some funny things I learned about myself was I always thought I was like an early morning person because I had, because like, well, you PT early, that's what you do. You do it your whole career. Um, and I realized like given my own druthers, like I don't want to wake up at five o'clock in the morning. Um, so that part was like, that was like an aha. I'm like, wow, I'm really, I really am not an early morning person. It wasn't really that hard. I think because I took the year off and I did something so totally different. And then when I was done with, you know, the athletic part of that and I was like, okay, I'm ready to go back to work. Um, it wasn't as hard. Now, you know, you go to the McChrystal group, we, we do have a fair amount of retired military there that I had known before. So it wasn't as if it was that hard to develop your new network of friends. Also, when I, when I came back to the DC area in 2012, I really, really made an effort to say, like, I'm going to meet my neighbors, which I really did not do my whole military career. Like, I'm going to meet my neighbors. I'm gonna, I was actually on a committee in my city for a little while, um, promoting bike lanes, of all things. Um, and so, like, really said, I'm going to put down some roots, and I'm going to really become part of my community. And that honestly made the transition easier. And and I, if, I, if I thought about right before I was retiring, if I was going to do that, that I, didn't, I don't think I knew how valuable that would be to me until I did it. Yeah, I think you yeah. made an effort um, to, yeah. to for the transition. And, and that's mm-hmm. something I think that helped me. And Mike, hopefully you're listening to this as well, because Mike's getting ready to make that transition. No, he's not paying anxious. Yeah. Anxious, stressed out, 30 years. <laughs> Call us when you're stressed out and freaking out. <laughs> we'll walk you through it. No, I think it's great words of wisdom, too, about taking some time off. We always talk to people about decompressing and taking that period of time to, yeah. if you can, and, and you should plan ahead. And it sounds like you made a lot of different plans. I don't know. Yeah. I would bet Patty planned. Yeah. Right? <laughs> I'm just a dumb warrant officer. I can't afford to take a gap year. No, nobody can take a gap year. And I will say, like, it wasn't the smartest financial decision of my life. Um, but... Um, Sitting in transition assistance, when people, some people are a year out and they're talking about it and they're like, what do you, what do you mean you're going to take a year off? And I was like, I'm going to take a year off. They're like, how can you do that? And I was like, because I knew I wanted to do it. And I started like socking money away to do it. Now I have one kid who's only in sixth grade. So college is not looming for me, you know, anytime soon. And he has my GI bill. So I think I'm fine, but I didn't, you know, I didn't have a ton of kids and a ton of extraneous debt. Um, but it was something that I tell people like when you're about a year out, like, Hey, start putting aside some money. Maybe it's only a month. Maybe it's only two months, but like definitely take time and do something. 
I got to spend time with family that I hadn't seen for most of my career. So that was, that was pretty critical also. Yeah. Actually, I got a question, Patty, before we get too far away from kind of your beginnings. I, I don't think any of us has accomplished anything amazing without <laughs> one or several people that at pivotal points in your life, you know, either gave you that break or said, you know what, said yes, when everyone else said no, that I think we all agree it's somewhere that was the fork in the road that had he or she not said yes, it would have completely sent me on a different path. Did you have any of those those personal epiphanies in there where one person or made a difference, maybe several different stages? Yeah. I mean, obviously, you know, my dad telling me I should join the army, which I thought was a really foolish plan initially. Um, in fact, my, so my dad sold used cars and I remember telling him when we got home and I was like, look, you're talking to an army recruiter, you are a used car salesman. Like you're the same person. Like, how do you not see this <laughs> story? Um, but he was totally right. I mean, I unfortunately lost my dad like four years after I came into the army, but he would like, he would just be blown away. Um, my, my basic airborne school certificate hung in his office, like for, you know, from the time I graduated until he died. Um, so he was certainly influential, my mom as well. And then honestly, I think the jobs that I wanted that I didn't get turned out to be like gifts, really. Um, when I came out of company command, I wanted to go to the White House Communications Agency and I didn't get hired. And I remember like crying like huge crocodile tears because I was told I wasn't smart enough to work there and I was crushed. Um, and then, you know, and then I had this other opportunity, um, which was, which was pretty darn amazing. And then when I was at command and general staff school, I was going to sock pack, which like, Hey, you're going to Hawaii, you're a triathlete. And how cool is this? Right. And I was already, you know, branch qualified. And one of my former bosses called me and is like, I really need you to come back to Fort Bragg. And I was like, dude, I'm going to Hawaii. Like, are you kidding me? Yeah. Um, <laughs> Hawaii, brag. <yeah. laughs> exactly. Exactly. And he's like, and I'm going to work you like a dog because we have some significant challenges, but I, I really need you to come. Um, and I was like, okay. And I was, I was married at the time. And uh, I remember interviewing and someone on the interview panel asked me this question who was like, hey, you know, your husband's a civilian and he kind of knows you've done some cool things. And like, what does he think? Like, what's his deal? What does he think that you're going to do this thing or you're interviewing to come here? And I was like, um, you know, I said, he's, he's actually a pretty great guy. And he's like, Hey, if you, if this is where you want to be and they're going to hire you to go work there and that's where you want to go, then we're just going to figure out how to be happy there. Um, but PS you're buying me a house on a golf course. Um, and I was like, that's cool. That's the only place we can afford that. Um, and so, <laughs> so I think, I mean, I think, I think some of the jobs I didn't get were, were helpful. And then, you know, I talked about, there was, there was a man that let me go to free fall jump master school, like gave me an opportunity. And then there was the boss that said, Hey, do you want to do something different? Um, yeah, those were all pretty pivotal to me, just giving you an opportunity. Yeah. And I know Mike, one of the things that you uh, brought up earlier on before Patty came on, it was, uh, a question that you were holding back on. So if you can go ahead and ask it. <laughs> well, I think as you know, we talked about your, your successes, Patty. And I mean, in reality, as I've said on the show before, uh, if you'd have talked to 20 year old me, you probably would have found kind of a jackass. But when you talk like 48 year old me, it's a little bit different, you know, yeah. perspective <laughs> is, is an amazing thing and a, certainly a maturing one. But, you know, we, before you we came on the show, we can't ask like, all right, which one of us is going to ask her the question? Yeah. And I'm like, well, and he they drew both the short straw because he's a yeah, CEO. Both, obviously, no, yeah. that wasn't the way they both were <laughs> smiling. Like, all right. I, I guess it'll be right. me. You know, so what challenges did you did you ever run across the bias that we talk about or any challenges that you had to overcome um i mean you certainly went about it a different way than than most soldiers that go about it or female soldiers go about it but 
did you actually run into the bias or I guess more importantly, how did you deal with it? Cause you weren't successful by being a hothead. So you obviously well, have I have a temper. Awesome. <laughs> I have a temper. Um, I, I certainly ran into the bias. Um, not much, honestly, I felt like I was, I was pretty lucky. Not much. Um, I'm trying to think of things that I would have done differently. I will say that I was pretty judgmental of parents in the military. And this is going to sound horrible, but I'll just talk you through this vignette. I remember vividly when I was just a company commander and I would ask, hey, where's Sergeant so-and-so? And they'd say, oh, his daughter had a medical appointment or whatever. And the first thought in my mind was like, where is their wife? Like how judgy, right? Um, never even knowing like, hell, maybe their wife is in the military. Maybe their wife is deployed, you know, who knows. Right. Um, and I remember, um, when I, when I worked with Tom, the things that we would do for families, like we asked an awful lot of soldiers for sure. But like, if your spouse was having a baby, you were going to deploy later, or maybe you were going to miss that rotation. Or if your kid had a medical appointment, no one expects you to be at work, right? Why can't both parents be at that appointment? And so, I, I have an adopted son from Guatemala and he was really, really little. Um, and I was driving to his first appointment where he was getting shots and like captain me in my mind, like that judgy personality was running through my mind. And I was like, Oh my God, I was a B I T C H like seriously. <laughs> um, and so that was kind of like my wake up of like, wow, you didn't have kids until you had like 16 years in the army and think of how different you were. You were, you were fairly, maybe not outwardly, but internally I was pretty inconsiderate of families. Um, and then I remember going to be a battalion commander and this was silly. I wanted to have a meeting before PT with my captains. And one of my company commanders is like, ma'am, daycare doesn't open until six o'clock. Um, and her husband was deployed. And I was like, I looked at her and I was like, and we will never, I will never ask you to have an early morning meeting. And she's like, thank you. And I was like, we, there's always another time to figure out how to do this. So, um, yeah, I was pretty judgmental for sure. That's that's some major leadership understandings there, though. I mean, you know, you go from where you were to all of a sudden understanding that soldier situation and changing the whole perspective on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's that's huge. Yeah, but it took me 15 years to get there. So well, okay. it's kind of like, like a dirt ball. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I'll, I'll tell you, Patty, if, if we can use you, because you're my first female guest, so I'm cutting, hey, some hey. Teeth, I'm cutting some teeth on you. Bring it on. Give me more. Yeah. So here's the deal. So at West Point, I teach the seniors this, this leadership class for the graduate called MX400. Okay. And off the script, I always end up speaking to the, the female cadets. And so interesting, my entire 27-year soft career, I never saw a female you know, we didn't have in the SEAL teams except some support. You know, we didn't have them in the regiment except for the very end, except for a couple of support MOSs. So I'd never dealt with them. So West Point is my first command in 30 years that ever had women. And so I've got all sons. I don't have any daughters. But having a little perspective. So I got these female cadets. And like, well, what's it like? I'm like, well, here's the deal, ladies. You know, and so I find myself talking like a dad. I said, but as, it's as good as it gets right here. This is as good as it gets for you. Mm. So when you go out the door and you're a lieutenant, so you're going to find sexism, racism, bias, all those things they talk about. It's, it's alive and well in the Army and every other service. We just protect you from it here. I said, now, that being said, is it wrong? Absolutely. Is it unfair? You bet. Hopefully in 10 years we'll get a handle on it. I said, but don't ever make that as your crutch for why you're not successful. Yeah. Like, I got it. You know, I'm like, I got it. It sucks. And it's just the way it is. So you can claim the bias as a reason you didn't fail, or you can be tougher. And, and they kind of laugh. I've had several cadets who are now lieutenants and pinned on cap and text me back. And I was telling them, like, you know, 
you can still be a cat. Just think like a dog. You, <laughs> you know? I'm like, you don't, you don't have to be one of the guys. You can still be a woman. But think like a dog. And, and so I'd be interested in that respect, I guess is what I was talking about, if you had any challenges. What advice um, do you have? Because you're, you're, you're my token female guest. Well, you were I'm in JSOC. Token. I mean, I mean, yeah, this is, this is an alpha male community, I would think, you know, and so I'm curious as well. I'm I'm thinking through. I mean, one thing I will say is um, the worst thing a woman can do is be competitive with other women peers. That is so counterproductive. Um, and it took me a little bit to see that as well in my own career. Right? You get your new career, you want to do well, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, boy, you know what? Make some women friends because one, they're going to be your friends for life. Um, and two, you have so many more similarities than you do differences. And everyone's going to go about leading and, and performing differently. Um, but certainly when you decide you're going to isolate yourself from, from women peers, like that's just, that's pretty horrible. Um, and so don't do that. Like, you know, make, make some good women friends because you need them. Um, you know, there's a letter floating around West Point that you probably don't know that I've seen written by a woman from the 160th. <laughs> have you seen it? Um, uh, I, I have not. <laughs> Oddly enough, I've been here three years. I don't think I've ever run into her. She showed yeah. up right as I was leaving. She's a tech. Um, yes. And she wrote a letter that talked about women underperforming with the new PT test. Therefore, we should just make standards higher for women coming into West Point so we won't do as poorly. Um, and someone on your faculty had asked me about it. And I said, you know, um, I, I think that there may be a couple of grains of good thought in her five-page letter, but she's doing a lot of damage um, and my thought process was, you know, similarly to what your, what, um, Colonel Evans said was, um, I suspect that military male physical standards upon entry into West Point have gone down over the years just because we're a fatter, unfit society. Right. Um, and yet we haven't done anything to them. And I'll bet if you look at women's physical standards from 1990, uh, 1976, when they entered the Academy to now, I'll bet they're performing a whole lot better than they have in the past. So oh, yeah. I think her premise on how she wants to approach it is not right. So, um, you know, we can spend an awful lot of energy building each other up and, you know, excelling. Like one of the things I loved about working with Tom's folks, like we, what was our motto was I never worked so hard to be so average. Like one, I don't have time to cut other people down because I'm just like barely swimming to keep my head above the water. Um, but I know that if I continue to do that, then everyone's going to raise their game just a little bit more. And you're just so much more effective that way. There's always going to be the, you know, the, the, the token female or the token minority, the token whatever that does something stupid. And yeah, that appears that you're, you're ruining it for all of us. But you know what? Like, we're all going to screw up at some point. So I don't, I don't think I really have a good answer on how to deal yeah. with the sexism thing. That's right. I, I, I've told the ladies, um, you know, the, the seniors that, uh, hey, you know what? You're right. If you're a tiny little little sliver of the population. And so when you do something bad, like when you do something unsavory the same way I would, I get drowned out in a hundred guys, but yeah, you're highlighted because you're one of three women. Yeah. So, you know, Tom's right. Everything's, everything's bigger under a microscope. And like you said, <laughs> but I always I'm tell him, trademark like, hey, that. Yeah, you should. You should. Good one. <laughs> but I tell him like, but understand that when you walk into a room and I was more referring to the soft community, the pilots, like everyone from the E3 crew chief on up to, company commander they're waiting for you to screw up you know they're waiting for you to do something stupid or you know say something dumb at a Chris company mm -hmm. christmas party or they're waiting for it and when you do it 
the rest of us to do it, and you know it gets lost in the crowd. But you do it, and holy cow, you know. Yeah. Like it's everybody on the planet, though, those issues they're projecting from themselves onto other people anyway. You know, they're biased. Ooh, look at you. Yeah, yeah. exactly. They're, they're, they're yeah. looking for it. I mean, so sexism, racism, it's always about the individual who's bringing it up. Those people, the women in the army, women flying, women in combat. I'm like, really? You're just insecure, bro. Just let it go. <laughs> let it go. The world will still spin. The sun will come up tomorrow. I promise you. Guys will fight that to the death and they don't even know why. They couldn't. To have a conversation, they couldn't tell you actually why they feel that way, other than they've been saying it all along. And and women do it to themselves. Or yeah, hearing it. You know, yeah. Hearing we're it from so, others, and that's what they feel like yeah. they're supposed to say. Yeah. We're so we're so hypocritical in this country. We talk, oh, look at the Middle East, they treat their women like crap. Oh, the women in Saudi can finally drive last year, you know? And it's like, wow, we're still putting our thumb on women here. We're putting our thumb on other people here. It's just has perpetuated from the past. It'll, it'll, be a, it'll be a slow turn off, you know, that kind of turning the, the gas down, the water will cool down instead of boil. And, and we're going that direction, but it's going to take time. So like Robert, if you said, or, or, you know, Mike, it's, it's, it's not, don't let it be your excuse. You know, don't let it be your reason. Yeah, that's a good, I like that. Yeah. So what kind of advice then would you have for those individuals that are making the transition? You mentioned about you took a year off, but from that, and now that you've spent a little bit of time out here on the outside and you've had a chance to work within the private sector, what's your golden nugget that you can leave those that are making the transition? I think what people miss most is, um, is there really the, the friends and it, it's really, it, when you're obviously you all know when you're in the military, you, you go through some crap together and you, you build those relationships that you can't replicate anywhere else. Um, and you're always going to miss that. Right. Um, but that doesn't mean that you're not going to build good relationships on the outside. So like you, you've got to try it. It's very easy to say, Oh, this isn't like the army or this isn't like where I've been, or this isn't like another place, but there are also really great reasons and great things about where you're going to be. So it's, it's actually deciding like, I'm I'm going to decide to like make this a positive experience and not drown in what used to be. It's never going to be what it was, right? Um, we're never going to be 25 again. I'm never going to run as fast as I like to tell people. But there is so many great opportunities out there, and you have to really like look at it positively on how you want it to be. You have an opportunity to have the life you want. Like if it's if it's a job that you don't want, guess what? Like you're not committed for 20 years. You can go find a different route or a different employment. You don't have to live you know, where your orders send you, you can live wherever you want. So yeah, look for the positives. You've, uh, you've ran triathlons and, and done a lot of things since you've been out, you're working at the McChrystal group. So what's, what's next for Patty? What do you see now is, uh, the next stage? Um, I, uh, I mean, I, I think I will always be an athlete of some sort in the past two years. I've been guiding for blind athletes because it's pretty darn rewarding to give, you know, them opportunity career wise. I don't know. Like right now, this is a good thing. You know, my son is in sixth grade. And so as much as we drive each other crazy, cause we're just at that age of, you know, middle school and growing up and things like that. Um, these are critical years for me that like, I will, I will do wherever, you know, whatever makes me at the center of gravity for him is that's my priority right now. And, um, you know, when he goes off to college or does something else and then maybe my plans will change. But right now this is pretty great. Yeah. 
Patty, thanks for coming on the show. I really appreciate you. Yeah, I really appreciate you coming on and uh, sharing a lot about your background. I think there's a lot that people could gain here, um, whether we were talking about making the transition, how you went about it, how you looked at uh, now the leadership and everything and some of the things that you've learned. I think there's a lot of information that people can take away here and really appreciate you uh, you coming on the show and sharing that. Thank you. It was great to be here. It was great to meet you all. You too, Patty. It's good. Great talking to you. Thanks. Yeah, thanks, Patty.